0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening. If you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 1, that's where we're going to be. We are starting a new series this evening. Um, Me and Stephen talked, and we decided... Uh, that we wanted to, to go to the Old Testament, and it was a, a toss-up between Deuteronomy and, uh, and the Psalms. And then me and Steve talked, and we decided to spend a summer in the Book of Psalms. Uh, just in case you, you didn't know, I might use this term. Uh, the Book of Psalms is also known as the Psalter, right, with a P in front of it. Uh, and just fun fact, uh, Corey Reed, I believe it was Corey or Katie, it was one of the Reeds, of course, that wanted to call this series a "Summer in the Psalms. And that that is hilarious. Like that's that's good. Who was that? Corey. Thank you, Corey. You are a loser. Um, we have, just for fun since we're just I'm I'm just goofing around with this whole idea of uh, like weird stuff like Passover and the Psalms. Uh, does anyone does anyone remember uh, Salty the Psalter? You guys remember that children's show, the, the Christian thing with like the big ugly blue book? Salty the song, whatever he was, it was, his name was Salty with a P in front of it. It was horrible. Like, Christian programming for children was just awful. Like, whenever VeggieTales is the best thing you got, you got problems. Um, but, yeah, Christian programming was rough whenever I was little. But yeah, I remember Salty the, the salt or whatever he was called. It was really weird. You should, you should Google it. It was strange. Um, but, yeah, we're going to be in the book of Psalms for the next 17 weeks or so. Um, maybe a little bit more, probably not, but right around 17 weeks Um, So the first thing that I want you guys to know about the book of Psalms as as we get into this uh, series is that that the book of Psalms is basically a book of songs and poems. Um, The Psalter was Israel's hymnal. right? It was their song book. It was what they sang in corporate worship. It was the songs that they taught and instilled in their people, in their children. Uh, and, and many people still today sing the Psalms. We, we do it occasionally. We'll do like renditions of like Psalm 46 and a few other Psalms. And there are actually some uh, churches, they're usually Presbyterians, uh, that practice what's called exclusive psalmody, which is where you sing nothing but the Psalms, uh, which is cool. We don't do that here. Uh, but yeah, but anyway, so just a fun fact for you. But over the next few months, we're going to be looking at the different genres of Psalms. Genres like Southern Gospel, Contemporary. Traditional hymns. This is hilarious, guys. I'm really trying here. Genres of psalms. I'm naming styles of music. That's funny. You guys are awful. That was gold. I labored over that line. It's actually in my notes. Um, That's the one that gets you, apparently. Um, Anyhow, Uh, but for real, there really are a few different genres of psalms. Uh, There are psalms uh, that are called hymns. There are psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving. Uh, psalms of lament, uh, kingship psalms, and, and a few others past that. But there really are a lot of different genres of psalms. And, and me and Steve thought it would be a good idea uh, for us as a church to, to gain a greater appreciation uh, for the Psalter and the, and the richness and insight and encouragement found in this songbook. book. Uh, but tonight we're going to be in Psalm 1. Right? We're going to be starting in the beginning. Uh, and this psalm is placed where it is in the book On purpose. Right? It's placed there intentionally. It's not by chance that Psalm 1 is the first psalm. Uh, psalm 1 is an introduction to what, to what is basically the major theme of the psalms. And also, uh, not, coincidence, eh, not coincidentally, but by God's providence, Psalm 1 is essentially the, the major theme of the whole Bible, or at least one of the major themes of the whole Bible. And that theme is this. There are two ways to live. There are two ways to live, and there are two outcomes of those paths. The first is the way of the righteous that ends with eternal life, and the second is the way of the wicked that ends with the eternal wrath of God. So that's how this book starts. There are two ways to live. So through this psalm, the author is holding out both options to the reader. It's as if at the outset of this book, the psalmist is inviting all who read this psalm or all who hear this psalm sung to come and know the Lord. To come and know God. And this psalm is meant to be an encouragement, one, an encouragement to those who know God and follow him by his word. But this psalm also serves as a form of warning to those who reject the truth of God's word. So where we're driving at this evening, this is my thesis for this whole sermon. Here it is. There are two ways to live. You can embrace God's word or you can reject it. And there is blessing beyond measure for those who embrace it, but only curse and condemnation for those who refuse it. So that being said, let's go into the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the instruction that you've given us in your word, the revelation of yourself, the revelation of the way to be saved through faith in your son, the revelation of morality. Lord, we thank you for this book, the scriptures. Because without it, we're like blind men groping around in the darkness. We can learn just enough truth from nature to condemn us and render us without excuse in your presence. Lord, but in the scriptures, we see all that's necessary for life and godliness. And we thank you for your word. And I pray that your people who are gathered here would leave with a greater appreciation for your word and a greater resolve for obedience to delight in the word. But for those That are gathered with us that do not know Christ, that do not follow him daily in faith and repentance. I pray that the warning of this psalm would, would be brought to bear on them as your Holy Spirit works alongside the preaching of your word. God, please do a work of sovereign grace this evening. Strengthen your people and draw sinners to you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so the psalmist is laying before us two ways to live. All right, like I said in the introduction, the, the righteous way versus the wicked way. And the first way laid out for us uh, is, is in the first three verses. It's, it's the way of the righteous. And then in the last three verses, verses 4 through 6, uh, the wicked are highlighted along with their end, which is destruction. But I want us to consider uh, the righteous way first, or rather the righteous man first. This psalm starts by saying, Blessed is the man. Right, blessed is the man. And I love the fact that the description of the righteous starts with a blessing. All right? And this blessing is actually pluralized in Hebrew. Right, it's, it's plural, meaning, oh, how happy is this man. Oh, the blessedness of this man. How eternally blessed is this man. The favor of God is on this person. All right, so that's how it starts. It starts out with a benediction. And I wanted to highlight this, that this blessing is the first thing mentioned because it is the blessing of God that primarily distinguishes the righteous from the wicked. Right? It's God's favor on the righteous. It's God's blessing towards them that primarily distinguishes the righteous from the wicked, the believer from the unbeliever. And I wanted to bring that out right off the bat, because we can read Psalms like this and really get them wrong. right? Like, and, I, and, I, and, I, and we'll think that, that there's some kind of works, righteousness, legalism taught in this psalm, but that's not the case. This psalm is not teaching us a works righteousness, that we're, we're good with God because of what we do, necessarily. In, in fact, Scripture nowhere teaches that. Right? But we're told right from the start, the big thing that distinguishes the righteous from the wicked is the blessing of God on the righteous. So this blessed man is blessed by God right from the start. And I just wanted to bring that out. Um, be careful when you read the Old Testament that you don't do what the Pharisees did. Right, and read self-righteousness into these passages that describe the righteous. Right, always be looking for where's God's grace in these passages. But the man, right, the man, blessed is the man. That phrase, the man, is actually a Hebrew way of referring to a prime example of a godly person. Right, a person who is righteous in God's sight. Right, it's like the, the, the righteous man par excellence. Right, so the man is someone who is in a right relationship with God. The man is someone whose faith is in God. This blessed man, this righteous man, trusts God. He's in a covenant relationship with God by faith. He loves God. right? He lives daily in the presence of God, always consciously before the face of God. And he seeks to obey God. So the righteous man is then described by what he doesn't do and also by what he does. Right, so this man's in covenant relationship with God, and there's a couple of things that flow from that. And I want us to look at the positive first. Let's look at what he does before we look at what negatively he abstains from. So we're going to skip down to verse 2. What does the righteous man do? What does this blessed man do? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So what does this man do? He delights in God's law. He delights in God's law. In law here, uh, the word uh, Torah, or Torah, I don't speak Hebrew, I don't know, Uh, but that word here, Torah, actually means instruction. It means instruction. So this is a reference, I would take this, and if you want to argue with me, I'll see you in the parking lot, we can do that. Um, But this is a reference to the scriptures as a whole. Whenever the law is referenced here, it's the whole entirety of scripture, because All the rest of Scripture is actually uh, expounding on the first five books of the Bible, really. The promises of God, expounded upon. The Messiah promised of God, expounded on. The law of God, expounded on. So whenever we see the instruction of God, this is a reference to the entire Bible, all 66 inspired books. But the righteous man, the blessed man, is described as someone who delights in God's Word. He delights in it. And to say he delights in it means he loves the Scriptures. He loves the scriptures. He wants to be in the Word of God. He wants to know more about who God is, what God has done, and how God desires His people to live. He wants to know what does God require of me? What does God want me to believe? How ought I live before the face of this God? And, and, And not only does He want to know what the Word says, but this is huge. He wants to obey the Word, He wants to obey the scriptures because He loves the scriptures. And we're told that the blessed man not only loves the word, but he meditates on the word. Now, don't do what some people do and think that that means like some kind of Eastern meditation where you're sitting cross-legged on the floor saying, You ever tried that? Don't. It's awful. It's pagan. Um, I did some weird stuff when I was an atheist. Um, But yeah, um, to meditate on the word doesn't mean to sit and and clear your mind of all things and, and just No, that's not what we're talking. We're not talking Eastern meditation. Uh, This word meditate actually means like to mutter, to mutter to yourself, right? So your mind is absolutely involved. So this blessed man mutters the truth of the scriptures to himself. He's always talking to himself. What has God said? How has God instructed me? He's memorizing the scriptures, or at least memorizing the truth and concepts of the word of God and always chewing it over, right? And in this meditating on the law of God. He's measuring everything. He's measuring everything, every situation, every circumstance that he encounters against what God has revealed in the scriptures. He's meditating on it. He loves the law. He loves God's word. But I always like to ask questions when I'm reading the Bible. Why? Why does the righteous man delight in God's word? Right, why do the people of God delight in the Scriptures? And there are many reasons, but just three that I want to I bring out to you. First and foremost, the people of God delight in the Word of God because it is in the Scriptures that we are taught the way of salvation. It's in the Scriptures that we're taught that human beings are saved from the wrath of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. Just go with me on this. Where else but the Word? Where else but the Bible could we learn about God's plan to send His Son to live, die, and be resurrected in place of God's people? This is not a, a human invention. No man would have, would, have, would have come up with that plan. Where else but the Scriptures could we learn that? Where else but the Scriptures could we learn that salvation is received by faith alone in Christ alone, without any kind of human merit or any kind of good deeds that people bring to God? Every other religion in the world says do this and God will save you. Our book from God says, no, you do nothing. You come to God by faith in His Son and you're saved. Where else could we have learned that but the Scriptures? Where else but the Word of God could we see that our sin was imputed to Christ, placed on Him at the cross, and that through faith the righteousness, the perfect life of Christ is given to the believer to be judged by. Where else? Only in the Word. Are these truths found about salvation? Hear me on this. If that and that by itself is enough that that makes the people of God cherish the Scriptures, this is just one of many reasons that we could come up with. The way of salvation is found in the Bible. And salvation is not revealed apart from God's truth. It's not. There's no salvation outside of what the Scriptures tell us. We should cherish them for that reason, if nothing else. But another reason is that it is in the Word of God that we see God's promises to us. Promises to save His people. Promises to sustain us by His grace. To protect us through life. To provide for us in our circumstances, both spiritually and, and tangibly, physically. Where He promises to be a Father to people who were once enemies to Him. To comfort us in all of our affliction by the work of His Holy Spirit. To work all things. And when I say all things, I mean all things For our eternal good. It's in the scriptures we see the promise that God is going to end sin and rebellion against Him. That one day he will make all things new. That he will restore this world to the perfection that it once was in the beginning. Where else but the word of God would we see the promises of God towards his people? Nowhere. Again, we are in blind darkness apart from the word of God. And then the last point that I had for this why do we delight in the Word of God? Why do the people of God delight in the Scriptures? It is in the Scriptures that we are actually taught, or that we are taught how to live in a way that pleases God and is actually good for us. This is something I think that sometimes we don't think on too much. In the Scriptures, we're taught how to live in a way that pleases God, and that way is actually good for human beings, it's actually good for human flourishing as we see the commandments of God and, and, and delight in them and seek to obey them, we are absolutely kept from unnecessary strife. I'm not saying that if you live by what the Bible says that you're going to have a super easy life or the persecution or, or, or poverty or, or, or suffering won't come upon you, but you will be kept from unnecessary strife. Unnecessary hardships that come by sin. So I'll lay this before you. Even if you weren't to be a Christian, Right? You'll, you'll, still, you'll still go to hell without faith in Christ. But this would still be the best way to live. Because God knows how human beings ought to flourish. He made us. He knows how our relationships are supposed to work. The things that we're supposed to focus on. But in the scriptures, we're taught God's morality. And the way of life. We're taught to keep away from things that will end badly for us. And won't bring us fulfillment. And likewise, on the contrary, we are taught in the word... To pursue those things that are truly and eternally good for us. All right, so, those are just three quick reasons why the righteous delight in the scriptures. But ultimately, and here's the, here's, the, here's the foundation for all of this ultimately, the righteous man delights in the word of God because he delights in God. That's really, like, that's the foundation reason why the people of God delight in the scriptures, is because we delight in God. The righteous man sees God as supreme as the sovereign ruler of the universe. He sees him as the savior of sinners, a gracious and merciful God, as the life giver. To quote the psalmist, the righteous man looks at God and sees the one at, at whose right hand is pleasure forevermore. They delight in this God. The blessed man delights in what God has spoken because he delights in God. That's why at the root, the righteous man's love for God flows into a love for everything associated with and coming from God. So I want to take a note of application here and, just, and, and pepper you with a couple of questions. Do you delight in God's word? Do you delight in the scriptures? Do you find joy in the word of God? And I want to put a caveat here. I know that reading is a challenge for many of you. I get that, right? Reading is a challenge for many of you. I know that for some of you guys, it is a huge victory and an evidence of the grace of God in you for you to sit down and read a chapter of the Bible a day, right? I know not everyone in here is sitting down and reading Isaiah in one pop, right? I get that. Some of you guys have a hard time understanding the scriptures, have a hard time reading in general. And again, it's truly a a discipline for you to sit and read. But this is what I mean whenever I say, do you love the word of God? What is your heart's posture towards the word of God? What's the position of your heart towards the scriptures? Do you love it? Do you love the word? Do you desire to obey God's Word. I don't just mean loving the Bible for how rich its poetry is and how good the narrative is and how profound the arguments of the Apostle Paul is. I don't just mean that because we can study the Bible like a textbook, but do you delight and desire to obey the Word of God? Is it a joy for you to be instructed by God? Do you cherish its truth? Do you accept and submit to the Scriptures? And I ask these questions and I hope that you'll be honest with yourself because it is a strong mark of the righteous person to love God's word and seek to be mastered by it. This psalm says the blessed man continually does this. He's continuously meditating on the law, finding delight in the law, seeking to obey the instruction of God. So I'll put it to you in a negative way. If you have no delight in the word or your delight in the scriptures is negligible, And I don't mean that you find reading hard, but I mean you just have no love for the truth contained in the word of God. You are not counted among the righteous. You are not counted as blessed if you have no delight in the scriptures. That's one thing that this psalm is teaching us. So we've seen in verse 2 now what the righteous man does. He delights in the word. Let's see what he does not do. Let's look at verse 1 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That is a sermon by itself. And I almost actually did that one all on its own, but then I realized I can't break Psalm 1 into a month. They'll kill me because we'll be in Psalms for the next four years. So let me just simplify this for the sake of time. Right, Verse 1, The man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. What the psalmist is telling us is that the blessed man, the righteous man, does not, one, he does not take advice that contradicts God's word. He doesn't, walk in the, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't dwell on worldly wisdom. He doesn't search the world for, what should I do? And then take the advice of people who don't know God, who don't love the word of God. Second, the, the godly man, the righteous man, does not live in disobedience to the word. Right To stand in the way of sinners doesn't mean like what we mean, like I'm going to stand in your way and not let you do anything. No, to stand in the way means to live a life like them. To literally stand in their way of living and be there with them. psalmist is saying that the, the blessed man, the righteous man, does not live in disobedience to the word of God. He just doesn't. He doesn't live like the ungodly. And then last is, and nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. Meaning that he does not mock the truth of the word of God. Let me lay this down for you. You can scoff at the truth without actually verbally saying anything. You can practically scoff at what the Bible says by disagreeing with it in your mind. By refusing to apply it to your life. By talking about it vainly. Just not taking it seriously. That's scoffing at the scriptures. So in short, the righteous person keeps away from every form of ungodliness. Counsel of the wicked, he keeps away from ungodly thoughts, ungodly attitudes. Standing in the way of sinners, he keeps away from ungodly deeds. Nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers, he keeps away from ungodly speech. He keeps away from all form of ungodliness. Why? Because the righteous man delights in God's word alone. That's where he finds his delight. What has God said? And because he delights in the scriptures alone, the righteous man forsakes everything that runs contrary to it. That's what the psalmist is telling us in this verse. That the, the godly man intentionally distances himself from worldly and ungodly influences. Right? He has a barrier in his heart. He has a filter in his heart at all times. And thereby he rejects ungodliness. Now, don't misunderstand me on this, because people have taken this verse, and and you ever talk about, like, bomb shelter Christianity? Right, where, like, you just don't have any association with people that aren't Christians at all? That's not what I'm telling you here. I'm not saying that the righteous have no relationships at all with the unbeliever. Right, that would be anti-gospel. Right, that would mean that then Jesus Christ is not righteous, because that's what Jesus did. But what I am saying is that the righteous person avoids being influenced by the world. The righteous person avoids being influenced by the godless. And, and some of you might get mad at me for this, the righteous person breaks away where they need to. Breaks away where they need to. Even from people when it's necessary. Even from people when it's necessary. Not that there can't be a time when that person then begins to associate with that ungodly person. But if it's not wise for them, they're going to be influenced by some kind of worldly wisdom or person who doesn't know Christ. The godly man will intentionally separate himself from them that he might not fall into sin himself. And the righteous person does this because he delights in the word of God so much. His love for God gives him an allergy to ungodly ways and ungodly living. Because he loves God so much. So I want to take another beat and pose another question. I pray you'd be honest with yourselves. What ungodly influences are in your life? What, ungodly, what are you allowing yourself to be influenced by? Are you embracing advice that contradicts God's truth? Are you living according to your own wisdom that you know goes contrary to what God has said? Do you get your thoughts on morality and life and faith from politicians? God help you. (laughs) Are you allowing yourself to be influenced by godless entertainment? And I'm not here to be Lloyd Legalist and slam a hammer down on everything and say you can't listen to metal and stuff like that. But what I mean is, are you allowing sinful influence into your mind with no filter, just taking in everything and imbibing it? Are you looking to the world for some kind of wisdom and direction in your life? Because if you are, I beg you, rid yourselves of the things around you that would draw you away from faithfulness to God's word. All things that would draw you away. Rid yourselves of them. In the words of the Apostle Paul, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You only need a little bit of yeast to make the bread rise. He's saying a little bit of sin can actually lead to destruction. Don't get so close to the fire, is what I'm saying. But what are you being influenced by? think on that later but then we see in verse 3 the righteous man is compared to a tree and it's an illustration for us he the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers So the first thing that I want you to see in this verse, just real quick, again, this is a sermon by itself, and I thought about doing that one too. For real, this is a good psalm. But the first thing that I want you to see just quickly is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. He is like a tree planted. A planted tree. The Hebrew actually says a tree transplanted by streams of water. See the grace of God here. The man is blessed. He's righteous, Because he has been planted, and let me lay this out, I'm not huge into agriculture, but trees don't plant themselves, (laughs) right? I know that much. Trees do not plant themselves. What does that mean then? If this man has been transplanted or planted next to a stream, that means that God has uprooted this man and planted him, and that God is tending to him and cultivating this man. This is all by grace. And something Jesus Christ tells us, I'm blanking on exactly where it is in one of the Gospels, feel free to check me on this, but Christ tells us that every plant that has not been planted by his Father will be uprooted and cast away. This man is considered righteous and blessed because God has planted him. And where does God plant him? God plants him next to the river of the Word of God. He plants him next to the means of grace. The Scriptures. And the man, what does he do? He's a tree. He drinks it in. He drinks in the word and grows into this beautiful tree that bears much fruit. And to bear fruit means he lives a godly life. He's living in obedience to God and being more and more conformed to the image of God that's been broken in him by sin. He's being made more and more whole. Living more and more righteously. And the psalmist tells us that this man is strong in the word. He does not wither. Right When the heat of the day beats down on this tree out in the desert, he's next to this river, and he doesn't wither. And he's always prospering. He's always spiritually growing up more and more, bearing more fruit, getting stronger. So the righteous man is compared to this strong, vibrant, productive, beautiful tree that God has planted and cultivated. And this tree, this righteous man, is a beautiful thing. In the sight of God. But, verse 4, the wicked are not so. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. You see a stark contrast here. This beautiful tree that God finds delight in, that likewise delights in God, is now contrasted, the wicked are not so. The text literally reads, not so with the wicked, not so incredibly negative Charles Spurgeon said woe to the person who is double doomed Because there's a double negative here not so with the wicked not so the psalmist is saying that the wicked are nothing like the righteous the wicked are nothing like the blessed man and we can look back at verses 1 and 2 and look for the opposites of how the righteous man is described look at how the righteous man is described and ask yourself what's the opposite of this man and we can see what the psalmist means not so with the wicked And in a nutshell, if we look back in verses 1 and 2, we can see that the wicked reject the word of God. At its core, that's what the wicked do. That's what the ungodly, the unbeliever does, is reject the word of God. They live according to their own wisdom. They do what is right in their own eyes. Always, in every regard, doing what is right in their own eyes. They trust themselves for wisdom on how they ought to live. They live day in and day out as they see fit. Living in constant rebellion to God. Again, a rejection of His commandments. A rejection of His word. And they have no delight whatsoever in God's instruction. They have no love for God's word. They reject His way of salvation. Scheming things up for themselves. They're completely opposite of the righteous. And this verse tells us that because the wicked reject God's truth that they are like chaff in God's sight that's really strong imagery chaff is the husk of the plant that's left over after you thresh grain right? grain is left on the floor chaff is, 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 is laying on, the, on, on another side it's worthless it's worthless has absolutely no value The psalmist is saying that those who reject the truth of God's word have become worthless in God's eyes. Have become worthless. You know what you do with chaff? You gather it up and you burn it. Because it's useless. It's what Jesus said that's done with chaff. It's what he tells us in the gospels. You gather it up and burn it because it has no use. It is completely valueless. Verse 5 says, Therefore... Because the wicked have rejected God's truth and are now counted as worthless in God's sight, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Because they reject God's word and live in rebellion against God, the wicked will not be able to stand in the judgment. They will stand trial before God, but they will not withstand the judgment of God. They will be condemned by God. They will not be counted in the congregation of the righteous. Meaning they will not be counted among God's people. Because they have no place among the righteous. The righteous are those who delight in the law of God. Who are in covenant relationship with God by faith. These wicked people have rejected. They have no place among the righteous. They won't be counted among God's people because God knows His own. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. God will not be deceived. He knows who belongs to Him. And no amount of external moral purity by our country's standard is going to deceive God who knows whether or not you've delighted in His word and trusted in Him. Morally good people who reject the word of God will not stand in the judgment. This is a warning to those who reject the truth of the word. The psalmist is giving warning. You will perish under God's wrath. But likewise, let's consider this. God, inspiring the psalmist to write this, is graciously giving the unbeliever a warning of impending judgment. He's graciously warning them, which means that he is implicitly calling the wicked to repentance. It's as if God is saying, hey, since you now know the eternal outcome of your rebellion and rejection, how long will you continue to rebel? Repent and live Embrace my word, embrace my way, embrace my way of salvation and be saved. Come to me and I will make you into a blessed man. I will plant you next to the stream of water. I will make you into this beautiful tree. Come to me and live. God's graciously calling sinners to repentance in this psalm. But while it's a warning to the wicked, this is also a great word Of comfort to the righteous. Verse 6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. What comfort that is to those of us who know God and are in a covenant relationship with Him. God knows His people. He knows who has believed. He knows who has embraced the truth. He knows who finds their delight in Him. And because He knows them, they will live through the judgment. This is the supreme blessing of God. To be known by him in the judgment. How blessed is this man to be known by God. But as we come to a conclusion here, we see that this psalm lays out two ways to live and the outcomes of both. The way of the righteous that ends with eternal life and being known by God and being eternally blessed and the way of the wicked which ends with the eternal wrath of God. The contrast between the two is stark. It's uncompromising. There is no gray area here. We're in one category or the other. But hear me on this. If we're honest with ourselves, please hear me on this. If we're honest with ourselves, the blessed man in this psalm does not always describe us. Does it? The blessed man in this psalm does not always describe us. Look at this psalm and then look in the mirror again. And then look back to this psalm and look in the mirror again. You'll see that you often do not delight in the law of God. You read things in the scripture and get mad. Why can't I do this? Why does God say I must do this instead? Why must I believe this? This is so hard. This is unbelievable what God has said. We do not always delight in the law. Furthermore, we are often, often influenced by ungodliness and fall into sin, do we not? How can this psalm be said of us? How can we count ourselves among the blessed of God? Whenever this psalm does not describe us day in and day out. In fact, the standard of the blessed man eludes us. We do not hit it perfectly. And we're not told that the blessed man sometimes delights in the law. And sometimes he doesn't listen to the counsel of the wicked. And sometimes he doesn't live like the ungodly. And sometimes he doesn't scoff. No, he said, he just doesn't do those things and he always delights in the law. Who among us can say, that's me? None of us. Which means that this psalm drives us to the true blessed man. The man whom this psalm was written to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God who for His people took on flesh and became a man so that He might fulfill this psalm for His people. Always delighting in God's Word. Always obeying the word. Never being influenced by the world. Not a sin found in him. Always delighting in God. And then, though being the blessed man would become the cursed man for his people. Bearing the judgment and wrath of God for our sin in our place. The righteous man counted among the unrighteous. The righteous tree counted as chaff by God. The only one who could stand in the judgment, undergoing the judgment of God and dying in place of sinners. But then being raised from the dead so that he might be the firstborn of many that he would make into the righteous ones this psalm describes. This psalm drives us to Jesus. We are not what this psalm describes intrinsically. But by faith in the Son of God, He says, I will give you my righteousness that you might be called the blessed man in this psalm. Through our union with Christ, by faith, whatever the Father says of the Son, He says of His people. We trust in Christ alone for our right standing with God. And we look to him and his example and we seek to imitate him as the truly righteous man now that we have been counted righteous people through Christ. This psalm said, blessed is the man. And the people of God respond, blessed are all those who trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth that you've given to us in your word. That through this psalm, we see what you demand of people. We see this demand to always delight in and always obey your word and to keep ourselves from being stained by sin. And Lord, that crushes us. Your word is good. There's no fault in your law. There's no fault in your instruction. But Lord, there's much fault in us. We are sinners. But Lord, we thank you for the blessed man who came and redeemed a people for himself, that he might be the firstborn amongst many who would be declared righteous by faith. And Lord, I pray for the people here that have placed their faith in Christ, that we would seek to imitate the example of Christ that we would seek to be the man described in this psalm. Lord, give us a delight for your word. Help us to cherish its truth. Help us to keep ourselves from sin, from being influenced by the world. But Lord, let us always set our eyes on your son, who for us lived and died and was raised, that we might be reconciled to you. For the unbeliever that's here, Lord, Please draw them to your Son. Let them see their inability to be what you have demanded that men be and their need for the righteousness of the Son of God. Draw them to faith. I pray that you might make them into righteous people through faith in Christ. In his name, amen.